0: The text of this morning's sermon is Genesis chapter 6, the verses 1 through to 8. We've read them already. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, church history is not for the faint-hearted. It was G.K. Chesterton that compared church history with a wild... Chariot race, the the church rushing through the centuries, careening around obstacles, and time and time again, just narrowly avoiding horrific, fatal accident. Time and time again, since the beginning of the history of redemption, God sovereignly permits the church to be brought to the point where she is in extremis where all things seem lost, where there seems to be no way out. The church has her back against the wall. And time and time again, when there is absolutely nothing that man can do, God brings salvation with his mighty arm. And as we come this morning to the end of the second Toledote in in Genesis You see there in verse 9, there's the third Toledote begins. These are the generations of Noah. That's the third section. And so we're finishing the second section today. As we come to the end of this second section, it seems like it's even worse than the the end of the first section. Do you remember how the first one ended there in the end of chapter 4? Man and his rebellion, the offspring of the serpent, seemed to have all the power and the glory. And there at the end of the first section of Genesis, at the end of chapter 4, the holy line, the offspring of the woman, you remember they were just kind of small and humble, and the only significant thing about them was that they were crying out and calling upon the name of the Lord. A bunch of weaklings, a bunch of no ones. Well, that was the end of the first holiday. At the end of the second one, which we're dealing with this morning, things have gotten even a lot worse And it's kind of like, if we use a a battle metaphor, it's kind of like the the kingdom of God is, is reduced to the very last city, which is still standing, and that city is besieged. The darkness is upon the land, and the enemy is not only at the gate, but the people who should be on God's side have opened the gates and invited the enemy in. And the church, the holy line, the offspring of the woman, is at this moment at the point of being totally overwhelmed to the point of being completely wiped out. The history of redemption is hanging here by a thread. And then, just when all seems lost... The banner of the Lord of hosts appears on the hill above the city, and he comes to save his people and to keep his promises and to destroy the foul, swarming hosts of darkness that threaten to annihilate the very last remnant of holiness and righteousness upon the earth. And as we look at the situation here in the beginning of Genesis chapter 6, I'm reminded of something that the prophet Isaiah writes many years later about God coming to save his people at another time when they were in extremis. Isaiah 63, and I'll be reading a few verses from that chapter. God comes to save his people, and he proclaims, Today is a red day. Today is a sword day. Who is this, Isaiah 63? Who is this who comes from Edom? In crimson garments from Bosra, who is splendid in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength. It is I, speaking in righteousness mighty to save. Why is your apparel red, and your garments like his who treads in the winepress? I have trodden the winepress alone, and from the peoples no one was with me. I trod them in my anger, and trampled them in my wrath. Their lifeblood spattered on my garments, and stained All my apparel for the day of vengeance was in my heart and my year of redemption had come. I looked, but there was no one to help. I was appalled, but there was no one to uphold. So my own arm brought me salvation and my wrath upheld me. I trampled down the peoples in my anger and made them drunk in my wrath and I poured out their lifeblood on the earth. God is a God of compassion. God is a God of life, of forgiveness, long-suffering. God is a God who does not delight in the death of the sinner, but that he repent and live. But there is a time when God's patience comes to an end. And there is a time when God finally says to the sinner, okay, that's the way you want it. If that's what you're going to hold on to, then here are the consequences. And that's what we see in our text this morning. Let's look at verse 1 here, when man began to multiply in the face of the land. Man began to, to multiply. The Lord doesn't give us a lot of details about all the children that were born to Adam and Eve and to, to Seth later on and to Cain. So we kind of wonder, what does that mean? Man began to multiply. How many people were there? We're ten generations from creation here. And I did a little bit of work with uh, some Google spreadsheets, and I first of all punched in a, a childbirth rate that we have in Canada, one point six, and I found that within about five generations after there were about eight people on the earth, that was the end. That's not a sustainable number. So it definitely wasn't a childbirth rate of 1.6 that we're looking at here. Then I punched in a bit of a higher number. I punched in the number three. And if you have an average of three children born to every couple, then after 10 generations, you have about... The 10th generation will be about 115 people. Okay. And then I punched in 10. And you've got to think... These people are living for centuries, and there are sons and daughters born to them. So 10 could be a, a reasonable number. Uh, some, some people nowadays have 10 children, and, and, and their lifespans are a lot shorter nowadays. And if you punch in 10 people per couple on average, then after 10 generations, the 10th generation will be about 20 million people. So Having lots of children makes a difference. And then just for the fun of it, I punched in the name, the number 18. 18, there is in our church at least one person whose mother was one of 18 children. There are families in this short term that we have nowadays of life that have can have that many children. So when you type in 18 into the formula, after 10 generations of an average of 18 children per family, per couple, you have... 10th generation is made up of 7 billion people, which is a little less than the current population of the world. So we don't know what the number is. We know that the Holy Spirit teaches us that there were a lot of people and it is possible with lots of children. It's possible that there were certainly millions of people on the earth at this time. And then in this situation, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, says the scripture. Now, sons of God, we've got to figure out what that means. Uh, Those of you who heard the sermon on New Year's Eve from Psalm 29, remember that sons of God can be used in the scripture to describe great spiritual powers and angels, and can even be used to describe great and mighty human authorities like kings. And, And so that's definitely one legitimate interpretation here that, that mighty kings uh, married daughters of man, whatever that means. Maybe they married people that were from the common people. That's one possibility. It could also mean that uh, angels came down and married human females. That's a possible interpretation of this, this phrase, the sons of God. Possible but certainly not probable or even likely, because angels are spirits. The Lord Jesus says in the New Testament that angels do not marry. And yet, look in verse two here, they took as their wives any they chose. And and the language here in Hebrew is very clear. These are not uh, relationships of fornication like the, the Greek gods and demigods that just kind of Uh, hook up with uh, human females now and again, uh, whenever they feel like it. These are actual marriages. The the, the language used here is the language that the scripture uses when a man and a woman are married before the Lord, and they form a family together. If you look at Luke chapter 24, if you just turn quickly in your Bible to Luke 24, the Lord Jesus tells us a little bit about spirits and what they do or don't do. Luke 24, 39, this is after the resurrection, and the Lord Jesus appears to them in verse 36. Verse 37, they're startled and frightened. They thought they saw a, a spirit. In Luke 24, verse 39, the Lord Jesus calms them down. He says, see my hands and my feet that it is I myself. Touch me and see for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. So spirits don't have bodies and you, you need a body to, to get married and have children. And then in verse 42, 41 and 42, he asked them for something to eat and they give him a piece of fish and he eats it. And that's another way that he's showing that he's not a spirit. He's, he's actually got a real body. And that's something that spirits don't have. That's something that angels don't have. They, they can't eat and they can't get married. They can't make love. They can't have children. And yet, what about the angels that were with God that visited abraham still remember those three that came to visit abraham and abraham mixed them a meal and then they go and talk about sodom and the destruction of sodom they ate the bible says they ate so how does that work and think about peter when peter was in prison in acts chapter 12 you remember the angel that came and woke him up how did the angel wake him up you either pushed him or tapped him or maybe gave him a little kick but he he he, he shakes him awake physically how is that possible if he doesn't have a body? How are we to understand these things? Well, in summary, the nature of angels is that they are spirit. They have no body. They don't eat. They can't get married. And these, these things that I just mentioned are uh, anomalies. They're not common occurrences. We could see them as miraculous occurrences, where at certain moments in the history of redemption an angel ate or physical contact occurred, but that's a miraculous occurrence. It's it's outside of the ordinary way of created reality. It doesn't reflect uh, on the normal nature of angels. Nothing in scripture indicates the possibility of angels, let alone fallen angels, marrying human females. Now, you may have heard of the book of Enoch, And you may have maybe even watched that uh, unfortunate movie in 2014 uh, about Noah. That kind of stuff is pure speculation. It's myth and and fantasy with a few facts thrown in for good measure. It's certainly nothing that we should use to interpret or to understand the holy word of God. The book of Enoch, if you've read about it, if you've come across it, heard about it, uh, all that story about the watchers and all these other things, It's simply Jewish myths and fables, and the apostle in the New Testament teaches us to stay far away from those kind of things. The simplest explanation here is that the sons of God is the holy line, the offspring of the woman. It is, is the church. And we can have a quick look at certain verses in the scripture which would back that position up. Deuteronomy 14 verse 1, for instance. In Deuteronomy 14.1, what does the Bible say? You are the sons of the Lord your God. Sons of God is applied to the people of God. Psalm 73 verse 15, if you turn quickly to Psalm 73 15. And there the psalmist says, If I had said I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. He's speaking about the people of God and they're called the children of God or the sons of God. Then Hosea chapter 1 verse 10, if we turn to Hosea chapter 1 verse 10, Hosea 1 verse 10, here the the Lord uh, says this, yet the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea which cannot be measured or numbered, and in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, it shall be said to them, children of the living God. And so this is important because the Holy Scripture teaches us here that there is a distinction. There are people who are not God's people, and they're not called sons of God. And there are people who are belonging to God and who are his people, and they're called children, or literally in Hebrew, sons of the living God. And so Scripture in these and other places speaks about the church as the sons of God. Now, what do the sons of God do? What is the church doing? Well, they're looking around, and they see that the daughters of man, and these are the offspring of the unbelievers, they see them as very attractive. And literally, it says here, they saw that they were good. And the language here is an echo of the same language that the Holy Spirit uses when he describes What Eve saw, you remember that Eve looked at the fruit, and Eve saw that the fruit was good. It was good to the eyes. It was good to be desired, to give wisdom. And so the fall, the principle of the fall, is happening all over again. God's people know. Genesis 3.15, God put a, a firewall. He put a division between the offspring of Satan and the offspring of the woman. He promised that there always would be a church chosen to everlasting life. There would always be people that would serve him. And now, what's happening? The holy line is kind of sick of being holy. The holy line is, being, is sick of being separate unto God. The holy line is sick of the perpetual enmity and conflict between the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of God. The holy line says, you know what? let's stop all this fighting. Let's stop this conflict. Let's just give in to the world. Let the world and the church mix. And so this is an attack on the work of God. This is an attack on the gospel of Genesis 3 verse 15. The whole point was that God put this enmity there to maintain a church to maintain the people of God, to maintain a holy offspring so that the holy offspring one day could be born so that the Lord Jesus Christ could come to save sinners. And now God's children are saying, forget that. We're just not interested in that good news. So what's going to happen? What if everyone goes over to the side of the enemy again? What if there's no church anymore? What if there's no people of God? Well, then the devil will in one stroke succeed in thwarting God's plan of redemption and his plan of creation. If there's no holy line left, if they're just kind of absorbed into the world, then there will be no holy line from which Jesus can be born to be Savior of the world. If the whole world is full of people that love sin but don't love God, then God's plan of creation is foiled. His plan for creation was to have a world full of people that love him and that glorify him. And so Satan intends to win this. He intends to destroy God's plan of creation, God's plan of redemption. Now, how does God react to this? Chapter 6, verse 3. The first thing he says is, My spirit will not abide in man forever. The word abide here is only used once in the Hebrew Old Testament. It's kind of hard to figure out what exactly it means, to be quite honest. But what it kind of indicates, not just abiding, but it kind of indicates contend or, or strive. Maybe if you have another translation of the scripture, you, you'll see those words used in your translation. Now, What does it mean? What is God saying? Well, the ancient commentators saw this as a reference to the maximum age of human beings that people wouldn't get much older than 120 years. They had been getting very old, centuries and centuries and centuries, and the Lord says, forget this, they're going to be limited to 120 years max. Now, if you read Calvin on this, Calvin says, well, that's not a good explanation. I think 120 years is the time till the flood comes. God says, the flood's going to come, I'm going to give you 120 years to repent, and then it's going to be the end. And to be quite honest... Both of those possibilities are legitimate interpretations of this this verse. However, I do tend towards the first. We do see after the flood a dramatic decline in the maximum age of human beings. And in fact, just read some research last week, Uh, I think it was Dutch or Belgium scientists came out with uh, another research paper which established that the maximum age of human beings is around, according to their calculations, one hundred and fifteen or one hundred and twenty. So that's what current science is also observing. My spirit's not going to abide in or contend with man forever, for he is flesh, as the Lord. And what he means here is flesh in the sense of frail and erring and and sinful and rebellious against God. Flesh in this use that the Scripture makes of it, it refers to the lusts and the passions and the basest desires and appetites of fallen man and think about it man was created to reflect the image of god he was created to to be clothed in the glory of the almighty but here he is he's wallowing in sin and shame and giving himself over to his basest animal appetites he does all of this, living and moving and having his being in the spirit of God. The only reason he can move, the only reason he is animated, the only reason he can, he can breathe is because the spirit of God is keeping him alive. And God says, that's enough. Enough of this tug of war. There's going to be a limit to it. Now imagine people that live for centuries and centuries how crafty and experienced in sin and perversion and wickedness they can become. It's an act of divine grace that God limits the human lifespan. He limits the damage that fallen people can do. He limits the damage that fallen rebellious sinners can do to the world and can do to each other. And so verse 4, we come to verse 4, and we read about the Nephilim. And there are lots of speculations and fables about the Nephilim as well. They're hardly explained in the scripture. We meet them here, and we meet them when Israel gets to the promised land. They see Nephilim in Numbers chapter 13, who are sons of Anak. And so those Nephilim that we read about in Numbers are pretty big people. They're giants. And so the, the Greek translation of the Old Testament actually translates here, in verse 4, Nephilim with the word giants. The giants were on the earth in those days. Well, that's not what the word means. We don't know what the word does mean, but we, we can conclude that it does not necessarily mean giants. The, the Greek translation of the Old Testament is importing the giant idea from Numbers 13, verse 33, where the the spies say, We saw the sons of Enoch, the Nephilim, the giants. Well, the thing is, the Nephilim that we read about in Numbers can't be descendants of these guys in our text because the flood comes between and everybody dies except Noah and his family. So, what's common? What's common between the Nephilim here? and the Nephilim in numbers that we see in the the promised land when God's people come there later on. What's common to them both is that they are powerful. They are mighty. They are men of renown. They are strong. They are powerful. They are tyrannical. They are bloodthirsty, proud, arrogant, violent. People, the kind of people that you don't want to mess with. So the Nephilim, the mighty men, of old, of great renown, are men kind of like Lemac that we read about in chapter 4. Men who violently assert their rights and delight in destroying anybody that stands in their way. Men who give themselves over to sexual perversity and use sexuality to oppress and destroy others. Now, a lot of people think, well, these Nephilim are a result of the marriages that happened. But look carefully at verse 4. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days when the sons of God came into the daughters of man. So they, they were around. This is, they were contemporaries. The situation was that there were these Nephilim guys. There were these violent, proud, arrogant, strong, tyrannical people. And in that period when they were around then God's people started giving up on the fight and they started giving in to the world and they started loving the world and and getting married, literally, to the world. So this is the picture. The line of Cain is growing strong and powerful. And there are some especially arrogant and violent and tyrannical men amongst them. And the men from the holy line, the men from the holy line of the woman, they're impressed with the violence and with the power and with the glory of man's kingdom. They're impressed with the sensuality of their women. And they say, I like that. That's good. I want that for me. And so they start families with women daughters of the kingdom of darkness. And they cultivate in their households that same lust for power and pleasure and human glory. And so this is a time of great men and great feats. But also a time of great falling away from the Lord, falling away from holiness. God's people have had enough of being the underdog, of being kicked around, of being weak, and and having this dependent posture of of holy offspring just crying out to God and calling upon the name of the Lord and waiting on the Lord and depending on the Lord. They've had enough of that. They're going to take some lessons from the world so in verse 5, we see the result of this. What's the result of all of this? Well, the result is that there's not just a multiplying of the human race, but there is at the same time a multiplying of sin and wickedness. Look how the Holy Spirit puts it. The wickedness of man was great in the earth. How great? Well, look at it. Every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Not some intentions, not most intentions, every intention. Not some of the time, not most of the time, but all of the time. This is one of the classic proof texts for the total depravity of fallen man. Things are bad. And this is the total opposite of God's design for the world. He made the world to be a place of goodness. He made the world to be a place of love and holiness and glory. But instead, it's a place of evil and hate and perversion and shame. And then we read some of the most shocking words in the scripture in verse 6. The Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth. He regretted. How are we supposed to understand that? How could God regret doing something that he does? He is perfect in all his works, and all his ways. His decrees are eternal. He knows the end from the beginning. How can he be surprised by anything? Didn't he know? Oh, brothers and sisters, we've talked about it before. When God speaks to us and tries to explain what's going on, it's like someone with a PhD in physics trying to explain his thesis, his doctoral thesis to a two year old that requires some accommodation when you're dealing with the average two year old anyway. And that's the way it is when God tries to explain his eternal decrease to us. He's got to really stoop down very low and he's got to talk baby language to us. He's got to talk language that we understand. That's what God's doing here. He's, he's talking language that we understand. Re- you remember Deuteronomy chapter 29, verse 29, the secret things are for the Lord, the things that are revealed are for us and our children. There's this firewall, there's this division in the revelation of God between the eternal decrees and how he reveals himself in time and space. So God's talking to us in language that we can identify with, that we can understand. What is, what is God saying to us? He's saying this this is not what man was created to be this is not a successful outcome to the project of creation this is not acceptable that's what god's saying i'm not going to put up with this the lord regretted that he had be man on the earth the word for regret here is exactly the same word that the Holy Spirit uses to describe Noah in chapter 5 verse 29. You remember Lamech when Noah was born, he said out of the ground that the Lord has cursed this one shall bring us relief. Relief. You see that word there in verse 29? That's the word Regret, in chapter 6, verse 6. Hebrew has different uh, ways of using the same verb and the type of, the, the, the way the verb is used in chapter 5 means relief or comfort and the way it's used in chapter 6 here is regret or to, to comfort yourself, to console yourself over something. So what's happening here? Well, it grieves him to his heart, says the scripture. It grieves him to his heart. You know, when you talk to atheists, sometimes they, they mock the God of the scriptures. They say, wow, he's a cruel and nasty God. He, he killed a whole bunch of women, men, and children in the flood. You want to serve a God like that? But look what the scripture tells us just before the flood happens. It grieved God to his heart. This is not some cold, harsh, calculating divinity which cruelly annihilates any opposition. But God uses very powerful language here to communicate his attitude towards a fallen world. It is an attitude of grief in his heart. And literally, the word grief there is the word pain. If you remember Genesis 3 verse 16, when God said to Eve, I'm going to multiply your pain in childbearing. You're going to feel the consequences of sin. You're going to feel the consequences of the fall, that things don't work anymore and that they hurt. That's what sin does. It breaks stuff. It ruins stuff. It hurts. And she feels that in her office as a a life giver. And then in Genesis chapter 3 verse 17, the very next verse, then, then God says that to the man as well. You're going to have pain. You're going to be working the land, but it's going to be in toil, in pain, it's going to hurt. It's the same word, the same word. You're going to feel the hurt, sin hurts. And it's that exactly the same word that is used in Genesis 3:16, Genesis 3:17 that is used here and translated in our verse as grieved." We can also translate it pained him to his heart. God feels the hurt and the brokenness that our sin and rebellion have caused. Sin and rebellion are things which pervert the very structure of the nature of creation. And so it hurts because it's not supposed to be this way. And fallen men and fallen women feel that pain. And God tells us today, I feel that pain pain too. I feel it in the very innermost part of my being. Now, there are ancient flood stories from a lot of different cultures, and some of the ancient Sumerian and Babylonian flood stories, they're kind of fun to read, but they're so way off, and, and they describe The gods being sick of doing work, so they create humans to do the work for them. And as they sit around in celestial indolence, they look down and they're like, wow, these people are multiplying very quickly. And the more that there are of them, the more noisy they are. And after a while, the gods get sick of all the noise. They say, you know what? We've got to solve this noise problem, so let's just kill them all. And so they send the flood and they kill them all. That's how the unbeliever remembers the flood in those ancient civilizations around Israel. That's not the way that the Holy Spirit describes the situation at all. The true history records that God is grieved in his heart. And so he moves on to, we move on to verse 7. I will blot out man who I've created for the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have Made them. Now look at the language here. I'm going to blot out man. He's going backwards in the creation account. Man was the final thing created, but now he's going to erase man, erase the animals, the creeping things, and the birds of the heavens. He's going to, and we'll learn about this in the next chapters, he's going to totally undo the creation week. We're going to get back to the very beginning of Genesis chapter 1 when there is no distinction between the dry land and the water. God is going to take creation apart. What's going on here? What is God saying? And why is he saying it? Brothers and sisters, what we're talking about here is not a cruel massacre of a cruel God. But what we're reading here is grace. God so loved the world that he did not accept that that beautiful thing that he had made was gummed up with the foul pollution of sin and violence and death. It's like, for those of you who work with motors and engines, if you've got a... I'm just, I'm, I, I don't know a lot about them, but I'm guessing here. If you've got an engine which is really gummed up with filth and with dirt and, and, and oil and stuff... And and maybe only one cylinder is still working, and and the other, the pistons are all twisted and broken, and the thing really isn't working. I guess at a certain point, you just have to take it apart. Take it down and strip it down and and scrub all of the parts and replace the broken bits and then put it all back together again. Hopefully, that analogy works for at least some of you. But that's kind of what God is doing here. He's going to take the creation apart and put it back together. For I am sorry that I have made them. The Hebrew word is nacham, nacham. Lamech said, this Noah that was born, this noach, hear the sounds, noach. He will give us nacham, he will give us comfort. And so we see those same echoes here in the end of our text. I am sorry, nacham, that I have made them. But Noah, noach, found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And here we see in all the darkness the glimmer of the gospel in our text. Noah found favor. Why did Noah find favor? Was he like a really good guy? Was he the only one without sin? And the Lord said, Wow, I really admire you, Noah. I need you to be with me. No, it's the opposite. Noah is finding favor in the eyes of the Lord. And after we learn that, the consequence is verse 9, Noah. Was a righteous man. That's a result of grace. And if you turn to the Hebrews chapter eleven, you see that it is an act of grace that he was a righteous man. That's what the Hebrew, uh, the, the author of the letter to the Hebrews tells us. So he was righteous. He was blameless in his generation. Well, that wouldn't be too hard, would it, in that generation? And he walked with God. And so what we have here is a faithful remnant god will gather defend and preserve for himself from the beginning of the world to its end a church chosen to everlasting life that's what god's doing here he holds on to the little thread of the history of redemption he holds on to the antithesis to the holy offspring of the woman now what do we learn from this text for ourselves today well, we learned this when the church loves the world, the church does the devil's work. The church militates against the work of God. Now, we may think to ourselves, well, you know, most of us have not married an unbeliever. So, what does this really have to do with us? Well, the thing is this we can be in love with the world without marrying into it, we can take the world into our homes, into our hearts. And when we love the world and the things of the world, then we work against the work of God. We work against the Holy Spirit. What does the Lord Jesus tell us? Through the Apostle John, he says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God, abides forever what does scripture teach us it teaches us this the more we love the world the more we love the things in the world the less room there is in our hearts and lives for the love of the father and there's this pressure on the church to conform there's this pressure on the church to to make partnership with the world There's this pressure on the church to exegete the scripture with the cultural hermeneutic to preach a message which the world finds acceptable and palatable. There's a pressure on the church of God also in our days to trim our sails to the prevailing winds in the culture, to soft pedal the teaching of scripture about holiness and marriage and sexuality and all the things where it most offends those around us who do not love God. And we are called to be prophetic and to stand for righteousness as Noah did. He was a preacher of righteousness. He built the ark. He called people to repentance. And we're living in similar days today. Jesus says in Matthew 24, For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Jesus says it. There's another flood coming. And it's not a flood of water, but it's a flood of fire. And as we prepare for that day which should come at any moment... We are appointed to one who is greater than Noah, someone who was born to give us comfort, someone who was born to be our only comfort in life and death, someone who was born to give us rest and relief from all of our toil. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. We are called to look to him Who was born to be our righteousness and it is him whom we must proclaim in the midst of a wicked and perverse generation. We lift up and proclaim the name of Jesus and we call people to turn from sin and to turn to the savior. And we don't love the world. We don't embrace the world. But we delight in proclaiming God's love to the world around us. Even to our persecutors. Even to those who hate us and hate what we stand for. Even to those who would strive to destroy and shut down Christian education. And who would mock us for our beliefs. We long to see them knowing the love of God and saved. We long to see more sinners brought from death to life. We long to see more people bowing the knee and confessing the name of Jesus because he is building an ark. And the ark he's building, he only uses the wood of one single tree to build it. It's the wood of the cross upon which he was crucified. And the ark that he is building is the church. And when he comes in judgment, the The ark, which is the church, will float above the fire of judgment, the flood of fire, which will purify the world. And on that day, all of his and our enemies will be defeated forever. And all who refuse to love Jesus, all who insist on loving sin, God will wipe them out. And he'll break down creation to the very elements, and he'll scrub it clean with the pure fire of his infinite and holy wrath. And so, brothers and sisters, we can have comfort And when we are overwhelmed and surrounded by strong, powerful forces that love perversity and hate God and his church. And when the church looks so small and insignificant in the eyes of the world, then we can sing the psalm we're about to sing. For this I know that God is at my side. My foes will flee when he appears in splendor, when we are oppressed, when the enemy is strong, when we're afraid, when sometimes all seems lost. We trust in God. We praise his word because he has shown favor to us. And so what can man do to me? Amen.